0: Welcome! Here at Waterstone, we invite you to find your story within God's bigger story. We are a church that lives for something bigger than ourselves, and is passionate to proclaim and demonstrate the way of Jesus. We are currently living through a time of radical shifts in technology, ethics, secular ideologies and religion. Our culture is increasingly shallow and lonely, yet, rather than offering an alternative, the Big C Church often remains silent or compromised. In a time of compromise and disillusionment, God is calling his people to a movement of beautiful resistance. We invite you to join us as we walk through the final chapter of the Book of Romans and experience a renewed vision for who the church can be, replacing compromise with conviction. If you would like to visit and attend in person, we would love to have you. Go to waterstonechurch.org to RSVP for a weekend service time on Saturday evening or Sunday morning.
1: Hi Waterstone, my name is Madison Campbell and I'm the Connections Pastor here. I hope that you all are staying warm and safe, drinking maybe some delicious hot chocolate at home and I'm glad that we can be together even though we are not physically present. It is wonderful to be able to fellowship with you all this morning. Will you pray with me as we start today? Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for technology and for the ability to come together, even in the midst of terrible weather. Father, I pray that you will keep everyone warm and safe, and Lord, that you will use my words to bring about transformation according to your will and all for your glory. In your holy name, I pray these things. Amen. So the past few weeks we've been looking through Romans chapters 12 and we'll go all the way through chapter 16. And I know that we've seen this graphic before but I wanna remind us of where we've been and where we're going. So Paul made this graphic and really it talks about where we started with the gospel, then we went into the body, then the other, and then finally the state, and right now we're moving back towards the inner circle. So last week, Larry talked about the other again, and today we're gonna be talking about the body. I wanna remind us that at the beginning of this series, the the thesis statement of really this transformed life series was Romans 12, verses one through two, which said, do not be conformed any longer to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So we've been looking at how a transformed life impacts us, not only through just the gospel, but but how we interact with the body of believers, how we interact with others, how we interact with government, and just every part of our life. This is this transformed life that we've been looking at. And so today, we're gonna continue that by looking at Romans chapter 14 through chapter 15, verse seven. And while I won't be able to read every single one of those verses, I think it addresses a question that we have frequently, which is, what do we do with the gray areas What do we do with the things that we disagree with other believers, but the Bible hasn't explicitly spelled out is right or wrong? These are things that we wish we knew specifically what God had to say about these things, things that we really want guidance on, but they're non-essentials. These are things that create arguments with us, but they're really not significant or important for how we are Christians. They, They don't mean that we are Christian or not, they are non-salvific is the way that we would say this and yet they're important. And really, if we're being honest with ourselves, they are things that bring about probably more division in our lives, more division among Christians than the essentials do at times. These are things that matter to us because they make us mad. These are things that we can staunchly disagree with each other and part ways and never talk to another Christian because we have so disagreed on a topic that's a non-essential. So these things don't mean that they're not important, but they can really divide us. These these things are things that really irk us. So maybe it's something like tattoos, or or maybe it's the piercing that your teenage daughter or son wants to get, and you're not quite sure, is this where our conviction is? For some of us, it might be, do I watch R-rated movies, or... For your parents, is private school or public school or homeschooling the right way to go? To go on to a few bigger things, things that may really start getting your blood boiling, maybe this is, do I vote Republican or Democrat? What about climate change and my role as a Christian? Is the creation account literal or is it poetic? What about the Black Lives Matter Movement? How do I address justice in this? What is my response in this? And most recently, just to kick the hornet's nest a little bit more, a non essential that I think has divided us more than anything else has recently masks. These are non essentials, and this is precisely what Paul is talking about in Romans 14 when he is talking about strong and weak believers. So this morning we're gonna look at Romans 14, verses 17 through 20. I wanna take a look at that together with you right now. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not, by your eating, destroy someone for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what you know is good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit, because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. Let us, therefore, make every effort to do what leads to peace and mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. I wanna take a moment and define some terms. Although we didn't see the words strong and weak in this particular section of verses, this whole chapter is talking about strong Christians and weak Christians. These weak Christians are are Christians who are not any worse or, or younger than those strong Christians are. In fact, they can be Christians who are older and still be weak. Paul is not making a value statement based on these weak, believers. But he's also not saying that they have everything together. These weak believers often have some sort of ritual or tradition or or conviction that constrains them from fully living into the grace and freedom that Christ has offered through his life, death, and resurrection. Now, these strong believers, it would be easy for us to think of a hierarchy that they are better or above the weak believers. But again, this is not a values statement. These strong believers are believers who have embraced, who have understood a little bit more of what Christ's freedom truly offers them, and they are not as constrained by legalism or certain convictions that they feel as they, though they need to perform in order to live fully in Christ. So this is the chapter that Paul is coming into, is he is looking at strong and weak believers. Strong believers are not to criticize weak believers or judge them for their behavior. And weak believers are not to look at strong believers and resent them or criticize them for not practicing the same things they do. Again, Paul is talking about non essentials. And I want to give us a little bit of historical context of who Paul was talking to in Romans chapter 14. See, he was looking at Jewish Christians. And Gentile Christians. And in the in Rome, where these Christians dwelt together, in this case, the Jewish Christians were the weaker Christians, and the Gentile Christians were the stronger Christians. Again, not because they were more valuable or less valuable, but because these Jewish Christians had grown up from a very young age being taught these rituals, these purification rituals from the Old Testament that they had to practice. And things like eating kosher meat was incredibly significant to them. So when they came to faith in Christ, it was difficult for them to really wrestle through can I eat meat that's not kosher? When I was taught from a young age in this tradition that that's not okay and the Gentile believers who hadn't grown up with those ritual laws of purification didn't have the same kind of trouble and so in this circumstance, they were the stronger Christians. But before we think that that was always the case, we can see another instance of this in 1 Corinthians chapter eight Paul is also the author of this letter and he's speaking again to Gentile and Jewish Christians. But in this case, their roles are reversed and the Gentile Christians are the weaker believers in in this circumstance because they are in marketplaces where meat had been sacrificed to pagan gods and they really wrestled through, can I eat this? I don't know if I can eat meat. Whereas the Jewish believers, did not have the same constraints. They didn't have the same context and so they felt greater freedom and they were the stronger Christians in this circumstance. So what we can see in all of this is stronger and weaker Christians are really these preferences, these non-essentials are highly culturally influenced. Again, these are things that may have biblical guidance attached to them, but they haven't been specifically named as good and bad. They are non-salvific, and so they are culturally influenced. So why does it matter to us? I don't know about you, but I don't think I've ever encountered meat offered to an idol or to a pagan god, that I've had to wrestle through, should I eat this? Maybe if you've been to a Muslim country, you've been offered meat that was given to Allah, and that's been a question for you, but generally, this is not the most relevant passage at first glance. And yet, we can all acknowledge that non-essentials have made us mad. Maybe we can think of a circumstance where we have staunchly disagreed with another Christian and wished that the Bible spoke specifically to this. And I think that that is exactly what Paul is addressing in these passages. Uh, In many ways, I think that these non-essentials practically impact our lives more than the essentials do. So Paul does give two main ways that these non-essentials impact our transformed lives that I wanna look at today. The first of these, we destroy the work of God for non-essentials. Let's look at Romans 14, verse 20a. It says, do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. Do not destroy the work of God. That is a really, really strong statement. And Paul is meaning to make a strong statement. I went back and looked at a few commentaries because I thought, surely destroy was not quite what the Greek word intended. Maybe this was just a way that we were trying to wrestle through some Greek word that had other nuance that we couldn't capture. And truly, Paul means destroy. This is an intentional and harmful tearing down of something. This is the same word that Jesus uses when he talks about this eternal condemnation. It is a very powerful and permanent word that is destructive. So destroy the work of God, Paul means to make a strong statement to you and I. And second of all, food. We've already established that this is very culturally rooted and so I think we can take food in this circumstance without stepping too far away from scripture to really mean something that's a non-essential or a preference. Um, And remember, again, that it's culturally influenced. See, these preferences, or these non-essentials, have destroyed the work of God throughout the centuries. I don't know about you, but I I do love history, and so I went through and looked at how Christians have been divided over non-essentials over the years. I have a few examples for you. First, the Great Schism of 1054. This is when the Catholics and the Orthodox ultimately split was over none other than bread. Do we use leavened or unleavened bread for Eucharist? Fast forward about 500 years, and Anabaptists were burned over how we baptize. Is it for infants or is it believers' baptism? About 500 years later, we're in the 1920s during the Prohibition era and none other than beer, deeply divided believers. Fast forward about 100 years to today, and one of the most divisive things that we have within believers is the masks. I know that that might sound silly, but I think that this small item has created so much division among believers. This non-essential, according to biblical outline, has created so much division within who we are as believers. And, And I wanna name that each one of these examples is much more complex in their historical context than what I have just said here. So let me explore that with masks today. For some of you, masks are not a preference. They they are a necessity. You may have someone who's immunocompromised at home or someone who hasn't been able to get vaccinated or maybe you have someone who's wrestling through some other disease or or terminal illness and they need you to wear a mask. I want to clarify, That is not a preference, but for some of us, it is a preference. For some of us, not wearing a mask or choosing to go to a church that has a specific mask mandate that you agree with, whether it's to wear masks or not to wear masks, that is a preference, that is where we divide as believers over something that's non-essential. And and for some of you, you have seen what COVID can do. You've seen, you've looked at science, and you say, no, this is where we need to be wearing masks. And you have a very valid and important view of masks. And for others of us, you look and you see legitimate, problematic legal precedent that's been set for the mandates of masks that we've seen, and you push back against that, but again, in either of those camps, it is still a non-essential. When we choose our preferences over unity in the body of Christ, we choose ourselves over God's kingdom. Let me say that again. When we choose our preferences, our non-essentials, over unity, we choose ourselves over God's kingdom. One of the best things we can ask ourselves when it comes to disagreements within the church is, is this an essential or a non-essential? Is this something that is salvifically based that really changes whether or not I'm a believer or is this something on the peripheral? Again, this does not mean it's not important. These can be highly important things that really deserve to be wrestled out within the body of believers, but they should not be the reason that believers are divided. These should not be the reasons that we are disunified as a body, and it doesn't mean that we can't have opinions on these things but it does mean that we have to figure out a better way of disagreeing with one another that continues to maintain unity within the body of Christ and maintain relationship in the fellowship of believers. We cannot allow our non-essentials to trump our relationships or the unity that we have in Christ. See, this also matters for the second implication that Paul speaks about in these chapters. Our non-essentials and the way that we use them or treat them weaken our witness. This is the the piece that really makes me mad. Yes, all non-essentials might make you mad too, but, but I think this is really the crux of what Paul is saying is it weakens who we are and and how we can speak to those who are outside of the faith. It weakens our witness. When we look at Romans chapter 15 verse two, it says, each of us should please our neighbors for their good to build them up. And a little bit earlier in chapter 14 verse 18, Paul speaks about serving Christ and being approved by men or approved by humankind. See, these words were not haphazardly chosen. I think that Paul chose two robust words to indicate that yes, he means the weaker believer, absolutely, as neighbor and human. But he also chose these words because in other writings, this means people who are outside of the church. Absolutely, we are dealing with how our non essentials affect our relationships inside the church. But when it comes to our witness, we cannot underestimate how our non essentials may weaken or strengthen our witness for those outside of the church. See, Paul has strategically also used the word destroy earlier, like we looked to contrast with the word mutual upbuilding or build one another up and he does this to show that that our non-essentials and the way that we use them or the way that we treat others in the midst of them, the way that we interact with fellow believers can either tear down the work of God, it can destroy the work of God, it can destroy our witness, or it can build up the body of Christ. It can bring unity among believers that can strengthen our witness, that can strengthen the work of God and continue the kingdom here on earth. This is a direct contrast. He did not mince words, and he did not choose things haphazardly. We are either building each other up, we are building up the body of Christ, or we are tearing it down by the way that we address our essentials and non-essentials. Again, I want to name, this does not mean compromising on the convictions that we believe that God has given us. It says earlier in chapter 14, "If anyone makes a weaker brother or sister go against what they believe God has convicted them of, then we are causing them to sin. This could be something like, if you come from an alcoholic family, and someone has pushed you towards consuming alcohol, but you feel that conviction because of your cultural context, then that person who has pushed you towards that has caused you to sin. Paul is not saying, get rid of that conviction for the freedom that Christ has given. Instead, he is saying, learn how to disagree well. Maintain those convictions. In chapter 14, verse 22, he says, So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Keep those as very personal and important things, and blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves. Again, God is not asking us to get rid of the convictions that he's put in our lives but when we project our convictions onto the people around us and expect them to please us rather than pleasing God, then we have put our non-essentials before God, and we have compromised the unity of the body of Christ. Disagree, but maintain unity. I don't know about you all, but I am a huge Oceans 11, 12, and 13 fan. Probably much to the disappointment and annoyance of my husband, I could watch these movies over and over and over again, really without getting tired, and that does include the original with the Rat Pack. Uh, In my opinion, they're just classics, but I particularly love Ocean's Eleven. And at the end of this movie, we see Danny Ocean, who's played by George Clooney, trying to make a deal with the owner of a casino who he's just robbed of over $500 million, Terry Benedict. And this whole scene has been set up because Danny Ocean wants to win back his ex-wife, Tess, who is currently dating Terry Benedict. So he asked Terry, if I can get you your $500 million back, will you give me Tess? And without hesitation, Terry Benedict says yes. Now, Terry Benedict, you should know, is a controlling, slightly paranoid man who prides himself on always knowing what's going on in his hotel, in his casino. But in an excellent twist of irony, what he doesn't know is in this moment, Tess has been broadcast this scene that happened before her of Terry more than willing to give her up for the sake of his money. So she immediately leaves, and we see this scene where, as she is about to exit the hotel, Terry encounters her and asks where she's going. And she looks him dead in the eye and says to him, You, of all people, should know in your casino, someone is always watching. Someone is always watching us. We should know as Christians that we are always a witness no matter where we go, what we're doing, who we are with. When we have taken on the identity of being a believer, we can't shut that off for the sake of having a free night. We can't shut that off when we disagree and we don't want someone to see that part of us. We are believers no matter where we go and someone is always watching us. This is not to strike fear or shame in anyone. I I do not mean that by any means. So please do not go from here and think, oh my goodness, I have to be so careful. But what I mean to do is to inspire us to strive for more unity in the way that we interact with fellow believers and with others that we encounter because we will have an impact to build up or to tear down This is exactly what these non-essentials can do in our lives. And when we learn to disagree well, they can build others up. But when we learn to disagree poorly, they can tear the body down. So this is not just an issue of behavior modification. This is an issue of heart transformation. We're not meant to leave this place and think to ourselves, okay, I just need to smile more. Or, okay, I'll bite my tongue and I won't say anything this time. Because that's still within our locus of control. That is still our righteousness that we are trying to bring up, that this is something that we are trying to bring about in ourselves. That is behavior modification. When heart transformation, again, the theme of this whole series, is something that is brought about by the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, making us more and more into the image and likeness of Christ. The Holy Spirit is the one who will teach us how to maintain unity in the midst of disagreement. Again, at the beginning of this series, we looked at the thesis for this chapter. Do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We learn to disagree and maintain unity with other believers through this transformation of the Holy Spirit. I wanna think for a moment, I wanna dream with you. What could the body of believers do if we were unified, What would our witness look like if the people surrounding us no longer had stories to criticize us for the hypocrisy of the lack of love that we show to our brothers and sisters, which unfortunately then extends to the other? What could we do if we decided to put aside our non-essential differences and prefer the other so that the witness and the unity and the body of Christ could be elevated, could be built up, What could we do? Instead of destroying the work of God for the sake of our own preferences, what if we put others first? This, again, does not mean compromising on the things that God has convicted us of, but it does mean understanding that he is more important than me getting what I want. Does this look like putting on a mask when you don't want to? Does this mean pausing and asking a question before you get angry and tell someone to put on a mask? Does this mean getting into a small group with someone who is staunchly opposed to your political party? Maybe somebody who voted for the opposite person and and has refused to have a conversation with you. What does it look like to put aside our non-essential differences? for the sake of the unity of believers. The way of Christ is a transformed life that prefers the other. It builds one another up and truly loves for the better good of the other. As we wrap this sermon up, I want to challenge us to really start thinking through the places that we have prioritized ourselves, the places where we've allowed our non-essentials to get in the way of truly loving the other or prioritizing the work of the kingdom. And in doing that, I'm gonna have a moment where where I'm gonna read what I think is one of Jesus' most powerful prayers for his church. It comes from the book of John, and it is for the unity of believers. So as I read this out loud as a prayer for us as we wrap, I pray that you will begin to think through, begin to ask God to transform your heart because it is only through a transformed life that we will begin to disagree well, that we will begin to heal and mend and come back together as a unified body. So listen and pray as I read from John 17, the words that Christ prayed over his church. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us